The Big Bang. The late British astronomer Sir Fred Hoyle came up with the term, a little sarcastic jab, as Dr. Hoyle was not particularly fond of the idea of a universe that seemed to have a beginning. Nor were other scientists of the time, including Sir Arthur Eddington, who thought the idea of our universe having a beginning was repugnant. The Belgian priest and mathematician George Lemaitre, one of the first to suggest that our universe had a beginning, though himself a Christian, did not think it wise to use the Big Bang as evidence for what the book of Genesis says about the universe. The late agnostic astronomer Dr. Robert Jastrow famously remarked that the scientific idea of a beginning to our universe looked suspiciously as though the scientists had finally caught up to the theologians. Quote, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, he writes, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Today, there is widespread acceptance in the sciences of the cosmos that our universe did indeed have a beginning. Many Christians, including philosopher Dr. William Lane Craig and our current guest, physicist Dr. Michael G. Strauss, routinely use the Big Bang as an apologetic defense of the compatibility of both science and scripture. There really is no theory at present which does away with the beginning to the universe, though there are a multitude of creative scientific theories about just how our universe came into existence. In a 2014 debate with Dr. William Lane Craig, for example, cosmologist Dr. Sean Carroll said he was able to find at least 17 different eternal models of the cosmos. Eternal? What does eternity have to do with science? What has become increasingly clear is that whenever the universe is the topic of discussion, terms resembling the language of the theologians always do seem to surface. Design, creation, eternity, infinity, laws, and things that obey these laws. In truth, one cannot discuss the universe without reference to God, even if it is an off-handed one. To do cosmology is really to do theology. The question, of course, is if your theology is good theology. And good theology always at least begins with the risen and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' disciples, we might say with tongue-in-cheek, were among the first physicists when they marveled that even the wind and the wave obey him. Not only do cosmologists and physicists and astronomers and astrophysicists all seem to agree that the universe had a beginning, but also that the universe contains laws which hold all the stuff in the universe accountable to a strict obedience to their dictums. So whatever your thoughts of the Big Bang may be, 
it is indeed a fruitful place to begin a discussion about God with those who don't yet know him. The Lord of the heavens and the earth has graciously provided us with the tools to build a bridge toward those who are on the other side. Many skeptics who object to the Christian faith and many people who end up leaving the faith often do so because of what appears to them to be irreconcilable differences between Christian doctrine and contemporary science. But as our guest this month suggests, there are no irreconcilable differences between faith and science. Arno Penzias, for example, the co-discoverer of the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is the leftover afterglow of the initial beginning of the universe, who, along with Robert Wilson, shared a Nobel Prize for their discovery, said of the evidence regarding the Big Bang, quote, The best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I had nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, the Bible as a whole. End quote. Our guest on this episode of Good Heavens would certainly concur. Dr. Michael G. Strauss is a David Ross Boyd professor of physics at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. He holds a Ph.D. in physics from UCLA. He conducts research in experimental particle physics, studying the fundamental particles and forces in the universe, and has worked at major international laboratories in the United States and in Europe. Dr. Strauss also speaks at churches, schools, and universities around the world about the intersection of science and Christianity. His latest down-to-earth book, The Creator Revealed, is written for a wider lay audience unfamiliar with the daunting science of cosmology and physics. It is a perfect primer for anyone desirous of being more deliberate and engaging questions of science and the Christian faith. So I'm privileged to be here in New Orleans with particle physicist Dr. Michael Strauss, who was one of the many researchers who sat in on the discovery and was part of the discovery of the Higgs boson. Uh, Dr. Strauss works at CERN, the Large Hadron Collider in Europe. Uh, they almost built one of those things in Texas, but that didn't quite happen. Uh, but kind of a funny story how I met Dr. Strauss really quickly. I just gave my first real public presentation uh, to academics and professionals about the story of the cosmos and Dr. Strauss snuck in the back and was silently auditing, auditing my class and offered me some very good critiques. And so here we are doing a podcast. Dr. Strauss, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. My privilege. Uh, so nice to have you. What brings you to an apologetics conference in New Orleans? I have a friend who uh, works at Oklahoma Baptist University, about a 40-minute drive from where I, do, uh, where I teach at the University of Oklahoma. And he's heard me speak and seen some of my writings and all on science and Christianity and asked, said he'd love for me to come and give a couple sessions. So that's, he kind of invited me and that started it. That's fantastic. So you are what is known as a particle physicist and you deal in things that are very small. And can you describe for people who probably have never heard of particle physicists, physicists. What do you do and how do you combine Christianity with particle physics? This is a wild thing. It's a wild thing. So the goal of particle physics is to understand the smallest particles or the structure of the universe. So most of us in school have heard the universe is made of atoms. Atoms have a nucleus at their core and the nucleus is made of neutrons and protons. 
Well, since the 1970s, we've known that neutrons and protons are made of even smaller things called quarks. Okay, so so what are so so we're talking about taking an atom and breaking it down. Yeah, what is it made of? The okay. same way that you could say your car is made of an engine and tires and seats. The atom is ultimately made of something called quarks. So how small have we gotten? Quarks is the final frontier of smallness? So far, but they're amazingly small. So the difference in size between you and the distance to the um, farthest galaxy you can see with your naked eye is the same as the difference in size between you and the maximum size a quark can be. So you're in the middle of the scope of the universe. So they're so small you can't even imagine. Wow. But it seems like we're on, as you just say, we're on a perfect continuum to be able to observe the very small and the very large. Isn't that... Some of it is technology, uh-huh. um, but maybe there's something special about that, too. <laughs> yeah, indeed there is. Um, so you've been a Christian most of your life? Or have you, you grew up as a Christian? Yeah, I grew up in a... My dad was actually a pastor of a church. I became a Christian when I was a child. But like the story of most people who become a Christian young, particularly thinking people like myself, is... As a young adult, I asked questions about whether what I believed was true, if there were reasons for what I believed, and re-examined my beliefs. I was, you know, I also grew up believing in Santa Claus, and I don't believe that anymore. I grew up believing that you shouldn't touch a hot stove, and I still believe that. Yeah, right. So examine beliefs are what we need to have as adults. Absolutely. So how did you go from, what were your early interests in science as a child, or how did you get into the field that you're in now? Yeah, I grew up actually, some of my childhood was in northern Alabama, Huntsville, Alabama, where they built the bottom stage of the Saturn V rocket that took people Uh, to the moon. So I grew up, even though my dad was a pastor, I grew up around a lot of engineers and technology, and that probably sparked my interest. It's funny, you hear story after story of scientists as adults now who were inspired by the human space program in the 60s and 70s. Uh uh And so that's part of my story. Um, All my role models were theologians. Oh, wow. And so um, I had this kind of convoluted path to eventually become a physicist. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And every time I came to a decision point, I would ask God where he was leading me, and he clearly led me to this path of particle physics, which I love. That's awesome. That's awesome. So for the discipline of physics, in your discipline, I mean, as a Christian, obviously you approach the physical world differently than your non-Christian colleagues. What do you think the difference is in the sciences between a Christian and a non-Christian physicist who are looking at the same material? I, I know you have a purpose in studying God's creation. What, what do you see in your discipline in terms of what is the ultimate purpose of, of particle physics? What are they trying to get at? Well, you know, the goal of a scientist is to understand nature. Mm-hmm. If you can't understand something, you can't eventually use it. So the example I always give is in the 1930s and 40s, scientists were studying semiconductors. They didn't yeah. conduct electricity, but they did not conduct. They were kind of in between. If you'd ask them, what good are they? They'd say, we don't know. We're trying to understand them. Well, the... Um, core of every computer, the brains of every computer, is a semiconductor. So the scientist is trying to understand it, and then maybe later on there can be applications. So we're Mm -hmm. just trying to understand nature. Now, as a Christian scientist, I I see the same thing as my non-believing science. I mean, when I write a paper about how quarks are put together in the proton, it's a paper that tells me how God, you know, made the structure of the proton. But that's a natural thing. Um, But then I ultimately, I think, appreciate the design and the intricacy more than some of my colleagues because I I see a real designer behind it. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think in the same way, you know, if, if I looked at a painting and I didn't really understand there was a painter behind it, I might ex- understand and appreciate its beauty. But if I understand that there's a painter behind it, then I get even more from the painting. Yeah. Um, and the brush strokes might tell me whether he was bold in his painting or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I think as a scientist, I get this deeper level of understanding the creator by seeing this marvelous painting called Nature that he has made. Yeah, yeah. How did, did, is the, the idea of design at this level for your non-Christian colleagues a troublesome thing? Is it something they consider? Is it something that they, do they think design is illusory? Do they, what, what is the... Yeah, that's a good question. It's, I always am reluctant to describe what other people are sure, thinking. Sure, of course, of course. It's a pet peeve of mine when I'm watching the Olympics and the announcer says, she must be thinking this, right? She, yeah, yeah, right, right. You know, so um, I, I, I think that mostly scientists are so involved with just simply understanding nature that they seldom think much about the implications of the design. Yeah. I, I think they would say it looks designed, but I don't think they even would take the next step and say, is it really designed? Okay. Um, unlike, you know, Christian philosophers or, or philosophers in general who ask those kinds of questions, most of the scientists I know are simply trying to understand and make the next discovery without thinking too much about what it might philosophically or spiritually mean. Yeah, so there's a there's a almost a taken for granted that the universe or the the physics that you look at are intelligible. Does yeah, the, the, of course. Yeah, you that, know, there, it's well documented that modern Western science is based on the fact that the universe can be understood because there's yes. a designer behind it. But we've lost that. Yeah. You know, I guess you could ask the question, when the mechanic is trying to fix the problem on your car, how much is he thinking about the engineer that designed it? <laughs> right, right, right. And right. this is kind of where the mechanic's trying to understand yeah. the, the car. <laughs> without without reference to whether or not the, the philosophical implications yeah, of a designer. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are the, what's your day... What's a day like at the Large Hadron Collider? What do you do there? So I am um, actually go to CERN from Oklahoma maybe three or four times a year. Okay. Um, and But I'm on video every day, and my computer has data from CERN. So I can do most of my work sitting at my desk at the University of Oklahoma. I can look at data that was taken at the Large Hadron Collider. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I tend to actually go to the lab is to discuss in person the things I could discuss over video. Okay. Um, or have meetings where I can be in person. There's something about personal contact, even yes. in a scientific endeavor, that is much more fulfilling than simply talking over video. Right, right. So most of my work can be done with today's modern technology of computers and Internet. But being at the lab means that I'm interfacing with people. I actually have graduate students who live in Geneva, Switzerland, wow. who are University of Oklahoma graduate students. Wow. So it's one thing to talk to them by video every week. Uh-huh. It's another thing to sit down with them looking at the same computer screen yeah. and discuss what we're seeing in the data. Okay. Could you, for, for people that are completely unfamiliar, could you describe what CERN is and what, what's being accomplished there? Absolutely. So CERN is what we call a particle collider, has, has the world's largest particle collider. Um, in, in vernacular, it's called an atom smasher. Okay. But it doesn't smash at, well, actually we do smash nuclei. But, <laughs> um, so 
the, the example I give is suppose you, going back to the mechanic, suppose you wanted to know what your car was made of, how does it put together, and you had no tools to take it apart. So you couldn't open up the engine and see what's inside. Well, mm. if you're a particle physicist, you get the car going really, really fast, and you smash it against another car going really, really fast, and it breaks into smaller pieces. Cracking the nut. Cracking the nut. Yeah. So what we do is we get protons to go nearly the speed of light inside mm. a tunnel that's about um, 300 feet underground and 17 miles in circumference. Wow. And these um, protons go nearly the speed of light round and round the tunnel, and we smash them together, and we build these... huge detectors that are about the size of a 10-story building to see the debris from the collision of the protons. Wow. And then we try to understand that structure, what's inside the proton, and other more complicated things because of those collisions. Oh, my goodness. And you're right. The U.S. was building the world's best collider in Texas in the early 1990s and decided not to finish it. And that's when Europe said, well, we will build one. And, And so now we're all going to Europe to do our research. Okay. Are they on a hunt for the, the, the great mysterious particle? Is there something afoot in particle physics right now that is uh, the great mystery, the great underwater, the great yeah, deep? <laughs> there's always something afoot. But I'll tell you what, it's kind of an interesting time. In the 1960s, Peter Higgs and other people developed a model of the, what we thought the universe looked like. Think right. of it like a jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. And we basically have been putting the pieces in the puzzle for the last... 40, 50 years. And the last piece of the puzzle was the Higgs boson, predicted by Peter Higgs and discovered in 2012. So we have this one jigsaw puzzle that's done. But we know there's another jigsaw puzzle out there because we can see certain effects in nature we can't explain. Mm -hmm. And so for the first time in my career, I don't know what the piece should look like. I just know there's another puzzle. So the first person to find that first piece of the next puzzle some new particle that is as of yet undiscovered um, probably wins a Nobel Prize. That's awesome. Now, we're t- are, we, are we talking about dark energy, dark matter? Yes. For okay. instance, the, that piece of the puzzle could be a dark matter particle. Okay. And if you found that, it would be outside of our current understanding of nature. We know, we know there's dark matter because we see its effect. It's like right. seeing the wind but not knowing what caused yes. the wind. Something's going on there beyond the vision. Right. And, yeah. and we think it's due to a particle that is is as of yet undiscovered. Okay. Could, is there any thinking along the lines, I mean, it seems like, uh, um, you know, particles are what you are discovering. Are there any things along the lines of maybe it's something else other than, entirely other than a particle, or is there any kind of talk like that? There are other options. Um, it could be we don't understand gravity at intergalactic scales or okay. galactic scales. Um, the nice thing about a some kind of dark matter particle is it solves lots of problems. Yes. If you can um, if you can hypothesize one thing that solves multiple problems simultaneously, it tends to be the preferred solution. Right. Now, the, the discovery of the dark uh, the, the, the the genesis, as I understand it, the genesis of dark matter was Vera Rubin's work with galaxies. Is that really that what... started it? But now, if you ask scientists what's the best evidence for dark matter, you get about ten different answers from ten different scientists. So there's lots of effects that could all be explained with dark matter, okay. which is one of the reasons we kind of put a lot of stock in it. Assuming it's a particle, why? Did, what's the best theory for why it's elusive? Because know? it seldom interacts with the other particles of nature. The way we actually see anything is it has to interact with the detector. Yeah. The reason I see this microphone 
microphone in front of me is because light bounces off the microphone and into my eyes, and my eyes detect it. So if my eyes were incapable of interacting with light, I wouldn't see anything. Mm -hmm. We think these particles seldom interact with normal matter that we're familiar with. Got it. So therefore, they're very elusive. And you don't know, it's, it's like you said, what kind of detector do we build to detect something we don't know how to detect? Right. <laughs> and, and we think they mostly interact by gravity, which is actually very, very weak. Uh-huh. Um, and it's it's cool to try to explain how weak gravity is. Suppose you have a little refrigerator magnet and you hold up a paper clip. What's pulling down on the paper clip? The entire earth. Yes. What's pulling up on the paper clip? The little magnet. The little and magnet. who wins? <laughs> yeah. So that whole earth is weaker. That's amazing. So gravity is really weak. Yeah. It takes the whole earth to do anything. To do, right. And even then, the little magnet it's, is more powerful. It's amazing to think about it that way. Yeah. It really is. And well, this is my favorite illustration of it. And so because this dark matter primarily interacts with gravity only, which is very, very weak, it's hard. It's hard very to, elusive. Hard to pick. So is this what they call the WIMP, the weakly interacting it's, This particles? is one option. Okay. One option of dark matter is a WIMP. WIMP. And there's machos, too. What's a macho? Um, is that a candidate? Massive something. I don't remember. But right now, the WIMP. Are the, most, the wimps are the most uh, the, yeah. the, the candidate, but but since gravity is so basically since gravity is weak, the particle that would interact with it would have to be even extremely much weaker. Correct. Well, suppose yeah. it only interacted by gravity, that it might take a detector like a big Earth to see it. Yes, yes. Or 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 you know or lots of these particles, so I might see it. If it interacts by electric magnetism, my little magnet could see it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the scale of what's going on. Okay, and so. Is there, there's so the wimp, the the weakly interacting particle is a, is a candidate massive for particle massive, is what the weakly is, yeah. interacting massive particle <laughs> yeah. is a is a candidate for for dark matter at this moment. So theoretically, the the Large Hadron Collider could detect that. Yeah. So the hope is that that even though it weakly interacts with ordinary matter, it does to some degree. So if you make enough collisions, you you might see a handful that would be this dark matter. Okay. So okay. there are lots of different avenues for trying to find dark matter. The Large Hadron Collider is one of the avenues. Awesome. And again, the cool thing about it is there's, there is something out there. There's something causing these effects, mm -hmm. whether it's another particle or a misunderstanding of gravity or whatever. And we, for the first time in my career, we don't know what it is. Mm. We, we predicted the Higgs boson. We predicted the top quark. We predicted these many things we discovered. But we don't know what this is, and it's kind of both um, satisfying and unsatisfying. Yes, yeah. Uh, so the person that finds it is going to be. have their name written down in history. Yeah, that's amazing. That is really it's fun. amazing to be on the cutting edge of that as well. Well, this is what's so great about research. Um, most of your life, you are studying things that people already know the answer to. Mm -hmm. You go to school, you take a test, the answer's in the back of the chapter. Mm -hmm. When you're a scientist trying to understand something, you're trying to figure out something nobody knows the answer to. Right. So if you discover something, you're the first human being to know that. And That's that amazing. is extremely yeah. exciting. That's what drives us every morning when we get up. That's awesome. So there, there must be a slight competitiveness oh, absolutely. at the collider. Yes. yes. Well, there's two main detectors, the CMS detector and the Atlas detector, that are kind of siblings. Okay. So we think of it like a sibling rivalry. Nice. You know, they, they have respect for each other, but uh -huh. they're both trying to beat the other. But it also makes for good science. 
Because, it makes for good signs. Because you have a, a something, somebody keeping you on your toes. And, and somebody to check your results. Yes. We all, um, we, we are as careful as we try to be, we want someone to confirm that what we found is really there. That's right. part of science. Right. And if there was just one detector and no one who could confirm it, then there'd always be this question, did we just do something wrong? Right. So I know you trade in physics, but it does eventually ultimately bleed over into astrophysics and the study of the universe. Absolutely. So we think that the universe started with the Big Bang. And so at one time, everything we see in the universe was very compressed and was very hot and and dense. And so when we collide particles at the Large Hadron Collider, the energy density of the collision is similar to the universe at 10 to the minus 13th seconds after the origin, after the Big Bang event. So we're probing what the universe was like at 10 to the minus 13th seconds after the Big Bang. So we really are probing the origin of the universe as well. So there's this great interplay between particle physics and at least cosmology, the origin of the universe. So I know, uh, I know, you know, uh, William Lane Craig, uh, who's, who's made the board, who's made physics famous by oft citing the board Guth Vilenkin theorem. Yes. Uh, Just briefly, as I understand it, that is, that says that, any universe in a state of expansion where the Hubble constant, the, the rate of expansion of the universe, is greater than zero is what they call has a past incomplete boundary, which means that any universe that's expanding like ours has to have a beginning. Is that pretty yeah. much the solid state of science in that regard? Or? Yeah, so there are always caveats to mm-hmm. everything. So what I always say is all the science we know, both observational and theoretical, including the BGV theorem, points to an actual beginning. Now, there are ways around that. And the reason is because we don't know what happened in the first 10 to the minus 30th seconds of the universe. And so if you don't believe that you can extrapolate what we do know to that very early universe, then you can extrapolate anything you want. So it's, I always colloquially refer to this as the atheism of the gaps. Okay. Everything we know from about 10 to the minus 20th seconds after the Big Bang until now looks like the universe had a beginning, looks like it was designed. Mm-hmm. If you don't believe there's a real designer and you don't believe there's a real beginning, you try to find, you try to speculate about something in the area we don't know about right. that is going to actually overthrow what we do know. Mm. So the BGV theorem is exactly as you say. As long as we have a universe that's expanding on average, um, it says that it had to have a beginning. It can't be past eternal. Now, there are ways, there are caveats that it could break down, but it's really robust. It has to do with any theory that has um, a space-time that has causality back to the origin. Yeah. So as long as you have causality back to the beginning, it doesn't break down. Okay. If you have some physics that breaks causality, which would be really weird, right? Right. It means you now have a time in our universe where there's no cause effect. Well, I know that, that some, some, I don't want to say fringe, I want to be respectful. Some theories have suggested that quantum mechanics kind of gives us that possibility of no causality have you heard people arguing this yeah way? there there are things in so quantum mechanics work is really a beautiful theory and mathematically it works i can predict what is going to happen in an experiment but we don't know exactly how it works it's funny if you look up on wikipedia quantum mechanics you'll see this long 
you know, article. But if you look up interpretations of quantum mechanics, you'll see even a longer article. Yes, and if you go to Google Scholar and you right. type in quantum mechanics, it's brrr, And the thing. reason is we don't totally know how to interpret it. One interpretation tries to say that a single quantum event is truly random with no cause. Schrodinger's cat in the box. To, to some degree. Sort but of. even that, yeah. But, but the problem... So that's a possibility. But, but I asked another more philosophical question, maybe. Even if I can't predict what's going to happen in this experiment, mm-hmm. if I can give you a probability of what the distribution looks like in a thousand experiments... You're still are, pretty good. With are that. you really taking yeah. away cause-effect? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I th- the answer is, again, you're hiding behind what we don't know. If you're putting all your eggs in the basket of quantum mechanics and no causality, yes, yeah. it really is hiding behind ignorance. Right. You're, you're sort of treading water with doing away with things that seem intuitively obvious. Well, I mean, and the intuitively obvious isn't always true, but, but I don't have evidence, definitive evidence for the other. Right. I mean, that's how you make discoveries. You're, you're making predictions yes. on these probabilities. You're, okay, this is, number ni- this is event 997. Well, the last 872 of these things did this. We're in a pretty good realm of thinking. We could probably go and see if we can find it again. You know that that same kind of thing. So with the so for the Christian for the you know we are sitting here at an apologetic yeah, conference. Talk about that yeah, uh, these things have relevance because well, as I just learned and and was humbled by your presence in my class, I <laughs> giving me a critique which is very helpful. Um, you know that's I'm always learning myself, but. The idea of, because I'm dealing with atheists a lot, I'm dealing with people that, I wrote my book, as I told you before we started recording, I wrote my book because I got a lot of atheists who were often telling me and correcting me and telling me I didn't know anything about science. Mm -hmm. And so I spent five years working on this and and trying to own it for myself. I still don't, I'm not a scientist, I still don't know everything, I still make mistakes, but uh, the idea of, of being able to give a defense and, and to be able to interact with your unbelieving neighbors uh, to be able to, to, to qualitatively have discussions and thoughtful discussions that say to your agnostic atheist neighbors that you've thought about these things. Because I think that's where a lot of objections are, I'm sure, with your colleagues. It, they look at Christianity, a lot of Christians who don't really think, or, or like me, who will often make the mistake of being almost polemical against science, and we're not against we're not against science. We're not against, we're, we're for good science, no matter if you're a Christian or an atheist. But how do you see everything that we've just talked about? How does that apply to apologetics in the Christian faith? Again, I think part of it is, um, you know, an argument like Occam's razor. Mm-hmm. We really do see a universe that looks designed. Mm-hmm. We really do see a universe that looks like it had an origin. Mm-hmm. We see an earth that seems to be unique as if humans might have a place in the universe. Mm -hmm. And you can come up with explanations um, for these things that don't involve God. But they look a lot like the biblical God. Mm. The Bible says in the beginning God created the universe, the heavens and the earth. It wasn't until 100 years ago that we had any inkling the universe had a beginning. Right. The, the Bible talks about the Earth as a special place, and the more we study and discover exoplanets, the more yeah. we, as you said in your talk, yeah. the more we see that. I mean, some of it is a selection effect, it is. what we are able to see, but the more we see that our, our solar system does look unique and our mm-hmm. planet does look 
uh, rare if not unique. Yeah. Um, there is design in the universe. Quantum mechanics is an amazing thing. It's how the universe works at very small distances. It's unlike what we're fam- familiar with at the macroscopic level, but it's so perfectly designed and tuned to allow mm-hmm. life to exist. Yeah. And if you were to change the microscopic world to look like the macroscopic world, we wouldn't be here. Right, right. So everywhere you look, you see evidence of a designer and, and a creator. Um, and someone who has the ability to put it all together, mm-hmm. not just the intellectual capability, right. but, you know, the the ability to execute all that. Yeah. yeah. It's not hard to take a step and say, this looks like a god. In fact, you, you know the story of Anthony Flew, who was, yes. you know, the main, one of the main proponents of atheism um, in in the U.K. for his whole adult life. And at the age of 80-something, he changed his mind and became a deist, not believing in the Christian God, but looking at the evidence and saying this points to a true designer and creator. Absolutely. And, and I think I see that. And, and this is, I think, the apologetic value. Christians tend to fear science. Um, I just gave a talk on how I, I believe the Big Bang points to the God of the Bible and is totally consistent with the story of creation in Genesis. If more Christians understood that— we would not be fearful that what we learn about the origin of the universe moves us away from God. Right. But what we learn about the origin of the universe, including the Big Bang, is going to move us towards God. Now, I know not every Christian um, believes or accepts that. But but you should understand how the Big Bang points to God, whether or not you believe it's a biblical yeah. idea. Yeah. And to me... Um, one of the things that I learn as a scientist is the more I learn about nature, even what sometimes Christians derogatively called secular science, yes. the, the more I learn about nature through my scientific endeavor, um, the more I see God's character. And so I think for Christians who want to um, try to explain and use science as an avenue to help their unbelieving friends come to know God, they need to understand how good science, um, how the science that scientists are discovering about the design of the universe and the origin of the universe actually point to God. And then these become tools, not that we fight against as Christians, but that we partner with as Christians to help explain Christianity. It's so difficult to to well, it's so tempting to be polemical it, absolutely it is so and, tempting and it's, and it's so his- easy to fall into it's polemical. been the history of the church it at has times, it right? has and i this afternoon i was guilty of that um but it, and it's so easy to fall into and you're only like a step away from being against everything yes and you know you you we live in a, sec- a, a predominantly secular culture i mean it's a post a lot of people say ph- philosophically we're post-christian and so we're always on the defensive yeah and that always puts us on the back foot and it always makes us feel nervous and always frightens us it always makes us feel scared and we think that any concession is is a concession to a defeat rather what you're as you're saying as as it's so necessary we need like it's an act of worship for me to learn the secular science to know the modern paradigm to be able to converse with your just like learning a language if you go to brazil as a missionary you you learn portuguese you know you learn particle physics language at least to be able to respect your particle physics neighbor i love that as an act of worship right isn't that what scripture says you you talked about the heavens declare the glory of god and romans 120 says um since you know all of creation will give god's character yeah uh, since the foundation of the world And, and to me this is exactly what the scientific endeavor is yeah um, Romans one twenty says everyone is without excuse because God's made himself clear through what has been created. Right. So to me, that means 
that the secular scientists should see the evidence for God. Right. We don't have to be afraid of where secular science is going. The interpretation of that is different. Yes. Right. Maybe the universe had a beginning. That doesn't mean it has right. a beginner. Right. But to right. me, if the universe had a beginning, the step to having a beginner is you know, a right. small step of faith, right. not a blind right. leap of faith. Right. Well, I think there's so much that can inform our exegetical, our, our scripture, our devotions. Uh, somebody asked me after the, the talk, um, why, was the, why did God make the universe so big? Why all these galaxies? Why, why does it look like it's just us? And she was afraid to ask the question in class. <laughs> so you know my answer to this. Yeah, right? I would love to hear your answer. Well, the question, uh, you know, this was brought up in the movie Contact, in the book Contact yes. by Carl Sagan, is if, if the universe is so big, we must be insignificant. What's all the wasted space? Right. Well, if you start with the Big Bang and you're going to create a planet like the Earth and humans, it takes 14 billion years, and you've got the right energy density or when it work, and so in 14 billion years, the universe expands. And the shortest amount of time it takes to make a single planet like the Earth is 14 billion years. Therefore, this is the since the size of the universe is correlated to time, this is actually the smallest the universe. The smallest possible universe we could have with an Earth like ours. Yeah. The question isn't why is the universe so big, it's why is the universe so small. Ah, okay. C.S. Lewis, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that he would rather have a big universe than a small universe. But, you know... The, well, it shows God's bigness, it, right? It does. But I think um, my uh, thesis advisor, Michael Ward, he's like, it really doesn't finally boil down to a size issue as much as it does the regularity, the beauty, yeah. the, the legibility, the, the incredible intelligibility, which bothered Einstein. Well, it, it caused him to wonder, right? The, right. The, the most wonderful thing about the universe is that it can be known. Yeah. But if, if we were another 15 billion years into the universe, you could still make a planet like the Earth, and you'd say, well, we could have been here 15 billion years ago. Yeah. Therefore, the universe is you know, 15 billion years larger than it has to yeah, be. Yeah. But that's not the case. That's not the case at all. Yeah. Now, here we are. What do you think about, um, back in the 30s, the 20s and 30s, uh, Georges Lemaitre, yeah. um, he was one of the co-founders or co-discoverers of the, well, for him it was a cosmic egg. Yep. Fred Hoyle comes along and derogatorily calls it a yep. Big Bang. Um, but uh, Lemaitre cautioned, I mean, I think it was the Pope, who jumped on the the finding and said, "Well, well, well, this this proves the Big Bang." So we get us into the, get us into this issue of proof. We don't want to use Big Bang as proof of Genesis, but I think, as you said intelligently, we want to point. Yeah. The Big Bang points so, to the similarities. This is a good thing as a scientist. You don't prove anything. Yes, you might prove something in mathematics or logic. In science, everything is a probability. Mm-hmm. So I think that energy is always conserved, but all I have to find is one exception, and it's not true. Um, and so this is how I base almost all of my truth claims, is what's the probability given the evidence? Yeah. And when we look at all the evidence for an origin of the universe, the probability that this universe had a real origin, a transcendent real origin, is really high. Yeah. And so, you know... Is that proof of a transcendent God? No. You can't prove a transcendent God. But it certainly gives another piece of evidence for Mm -hmm. the validity of that belief. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I asked some of the greatest Christian minds that I know, um, 
are you 100% certain that the core beliefs of Christianity are true? Nobody gives you 100% certainty because that's not how life is. And so to me, it's given the evidence, what's the probability Mm. that the biblical God and the biblical Christian worldview is true? Mm -hmm. And somewhere in the high 90s because the evidence is pretty overwhelming. And this is how I live my life. You know, I could get on the interstate tomorrow and the guy driving on the other lane could be drunk and cross the median and smash into me and I could die. But that's a relatively low probability. Mm-hmm. And so I get on the interstate and drive right, anyway. Right. But right. it, but we, so we base our life on what's the best probability, unless you buy lottery tickets. There, so I'm yeah, not sure. It's right? absolutely. Uh, but that, that is so true. When you look at the beginning of time, I mean, a lot of skeptics and agnostics that I, I talk to will sort of demand this this empiricism. This It seems like a leftover logical positivism, that, that, that there's, there's, there's this sort of cultural mythos that, that empirical science is sort of the cultural authority of our knowledge, that we must prove something to be true. But how much empirical proof do we need before we can make well, a truth claim? You was, know? Yeah, I think... Maybe 51%, right? (laughs) I don't know what the answer is. It was interesting. um, Who was the speaker at this point? Alistair Alistair McGrath. McGrath, right. Uh And, you know, he was an atheist who became a Christian. And it was interesting to hear his story because he said that even as an atheist, he realized that his truth claims could not be proven 100%. -hmm, mm -hmm. And and it got him thinking, well, if I can't prove my truth claims 100% and nobody can, maybe I need to look into the probability of other truth claims. Yes. And I think that was very telling for me as someone who grew up in a Christian environment Mm -hmm. to realize that a honest, any honest human being is going to say, I can't prove my truth claims 100%. Yeah. Have I investigated the other truth claims in the world? And is do I really feel confident that mine rise to the highest probability? Yeah. And yeah. I think when you do that honestly, the Christian worldview rises head and shoulders. And we've seen that, right? You can mm-hmm. name probably off the top of your head a dozen people who investigated the truth claim of the resurrection of Christ yeah. as an atheist and became Christians. Absolutely. Because yeah. the evidence is there. Right, right. It, it's phenomenal. I uh, one of my early in my Christian walk, I became a Christian when I was uh, in my in my late twenties. Um, one of my first individuals I stumbled across was John Polkinghorne, Sir John Polkinghorne, who was uh, a particle, I think, particle physicist, physicist yeah, turned physicist, yeah. turned priest, Anglican yeah. priest. Uh, and I just I was absolutely fascinated by the confluence of, of physics and science and, and theology. I've always had a love of astronomy ever since I was a kid. I grew up with Carl Sagan. We actually, at, at our book club, we actually interviewed uh, Carl Sagan's daughter. Mm. Uh, we, we did Pale Blue Dot for our book club, and mm. then we, we interviewed Sasha. She was nice. so, so nice. Um, but one of the things that really interested me was that you think, when you think of Carl Sagan, you tend, a lot of people, a lot of atheists will claim him for their, for their belief system. Yeah. But uh, Sasha surprised me and told me stories about how open they were mm. to Christianity in the home. They had a nanny from the time Sasha was born until the time she was eight who's Catholic but very devout and always openly spoke of Jesus in the home, took Sasha to church, and they were always conversant about Christianity. There was no, you, would, you might think the Sagan household would be prohibitive against that sort of thing, but Sasha said no, they were very open to it, which gave me a whole other perspective about Carl Sagan that I had absolutely no knowledge of. You know, and it's. I think what you've been talking about here is it's not only we're just not talking about the physical universe. We're talking about people that hold these beliefs, and this is where another aspect of learning apologetics is a continual process of being relationally open to understanding not just physics, but physicists, but but other people, 
and recognize that a lot of their worldview is not... Um, well, and to me, if I want to know what's true, you know, absolute truth, I better understand those who disagree with me. Right. Because maybe they hold either absolute truth or some level of truth. So I spend a lot of my time reading, you know, we talked about Larry Krauss yeah. and Michael Shermer and um, uh, what... Uh, Sean Carroll. Sean Carroll. That's yeah. the name I can remember. That, that I are people who totally disagree with me, mm-hmm. and I read those who believe the universe is six thousand years old, so I can see why they think that. Right. And and it's only by filtering, you know, these other ideas that I say, oh, this even gives more validity to some of the things I believe. And sometimes right. I change my mind because I remember reading. Um, Dawkins, a blind watchmaker. Yes. Where he's trying to convince me that evolution is, you know, has no loopholes, basically. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, if that's the best you've got, <laughs> I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of questions <laughs> for you, sir. Yes, yes. Um, so what's uh, going forward? How do you, um, what's the future of, of, of physics and, and, and how is it going to drive uh, the sciences, because I, I would like, to, I'm one of those that believes physics is the foundational science. Oh, of course it, it has is. to be. I'm a physicist, right? right? Uh, <laughs> but there's that ongoing tension between biology and physics, right? Which one? No, even the, the biologists will say it's all physics. Yeah, yeah. Microbiology is all uh, electrodynamics. <laughs> do you see? Do you see more? I see this a lot. Uh, do you see more of an interdisciplinary approach to understanding the physical world, or do you see it fragmenting into more and more niche disciplines? I think both. Okay. You know, I think there's a an understanding that interdisciplinary has a really important place, particularly in solving certain problems. But I think there'll always be also a case in which you must be really specified to really make progress. Yeah. And so I think there'll be an interplay in both. Yeah. And, and I don't know where it goes. Again, the the beauty of doing science is you don't know what the answer yeah. to the next question yeah. is. Right, right. If you knew it, you wouldn't have you to wouldn't do have the to experiment. Do science. Right, right. right. Uh, you know Dr. Luke Barnes. I've had him on the podcast before. I love his analogy of uh, what he calls Alberta's blackboard, where, where uh, the great-great-great-great-granddaughter of Albert Einstein gets up on a chalkboard and writes a one-inch equation and says, that's it. Uh, Luke says, we're not going to stop doing science at that point. You know, right. even if we get the equation that we're all after, there's still going to be that ongoing. We don't we don't shut down the labs and go do something else. That science is a continual ongoing investigation of the universe just yeah. just because, you know, as, as as we believe, I think God has created it to be discovered. Psalm 111, uh, 2 says, uh, great are the works of the Lord. They are mm. studied by all who love them, you know, mm. that, who, who know them. Um, mm. So. I think, you know, it's like I was trying to do it in my talk today, but, you know, the, the name of Cork came from uh, Murray Gell Mann or uh, the, the, the Three Corks from Master Mark yeah, or something. It, it, it came was, from a, a short story. Yeah, I, I, I say this, Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, but there's a creative, I think it was Penrose in his book, uh, Fashion, Faith, and Fantasy, his last book, talking about thinking imaginatively about the universe. We're at a point in physics and science where, things are we need to stretch the imagination a little bit what role do you see the imagination and creativity playing in your discipline that's a great question um some people say the best scientists are the most imaginative yeah because you have to think outside the box at times um Feynman, Richard Feynman comes to mind with his drawings yeah just just completely radically different thought well and what people don't know is that quantum field theory was developed you know, independently by Feynman and Schwinger, mm-hmm. and they had very different methods that ultimately were the same. Yeah. But we all know Feynman diagrams because they were so pictorial and imaginative. Yeah, exactly. Very few people do quantum field theory as Schwinger did, <laughs> You're right, right. even though they're the same. Um, but I, I just think, you know, 
that the best scientists have a, an imagination and a creativity um, to think outside the box. Mm-hmm. Again, the thing, one of the things I see about God in nature is his um, creativity. I don't know the right word, but Isaiah 55 says God's ways are not our ways. Yeah. Uh-huh. Nor his thoughts are thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways um, different than my ways or something like that. And this is what I see in nature. You, you could have never predicted quantum mechanics. Right. You probably could have never predicted quantum field theory. Well, Paul Dirac is remarkable in right. and of itself. His criteria for math was beauty. Yes. That's like it has to be beautiful or it's not, it's exactly. not true. And, and when his equation predicted antiparticles and he had never You're seen like, them. You're like, what? Well, he said the equation is so beautiful they have to they exist. They have to be there. And right. they did, right? right? I mean, again, what does that do to your worship? Yeah. To say that what I see in nature is never predictable in some no. sense until I understand it. That's right. totally predictable. Right. In fact, one of my physics professors says the goal of, nat- of physics is to predict the future, mm. to know how nature works so I can tell you what's going to happen. But until we make those discoveries, where it leads us, we would have never predicted. Yeah. And, and that to me just says, I serve a God who is much bigger and broader than I could ever imagine. Yeah. I would have never invented quantum mechanics to describe the universe. It's amazing. But it's there. It means that the creator of the universe is far more imaginative than I could ever be. Yeah. For me as a layman, I love the, the duality of the light particle. Yeah. And I think it reminds, you know, I'm not saying that this is the, this is the way God intended it, but it's the way my brain works right. that I see Jesus as fully God, fully man, as, as mysterious as light, as fully particle, fully wave, or at least behaving in such a yeah, way. Yeah. I, I think, you know, there are analogies that have pluses and minuses. Right. No it's, analogy it's, is yeah. perfect. And it's a good analogy. I think what it also shows is there are mysteries yes. that the world is this way. I can't fully comprehend it. Right. In fact, we still debate exactly what the dual nature of, right. of not just light, but particles are. Every right. particle is also a wave. Right, right, right? exactly. Well, so. it's, I, I don't take credit for this pun, but somebody said, I read it somewhere, I'm sure, I don't remember who said it, but you get uh, two, two PhD physicists in the room and, and you, you, you'll, you'll always have a paradox. You know, <laughs> yes, you I like that. the mystery you won't be solved, but you know, there's yeah. a, so that was kind of a fun pun. But, but I think that's true. I think, I, I, for me, I like to leave that I like to leave the enigma. It's not to say that it's a prohibition against looking into something. It's an invitation to look into Absolutely. something. But I think the epistemic humility that is there is to say, okay, it's okay if I don't know. You know, it's okay. But it's it, the fun in discovering things, and especially if you know Christ, it's it's the greatest thing in the world to give your 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 work is your worship. Yeah. You know, it's not just everybody looks at, you know, and you can be. I, I think this is where our, the heart of my book is. I still have to work on this though. But that we don't want to be polemic against good science we just we just don't want to do that well, again as we've talked about in this podcast scripture says study nature should lead us to yeah. god and i think it's a little bit arrogant to say that those secular scientists aren't getting it right yeah um i think that a god who created the universe and wants to draw people to himself would make any study of nature ultimately lead to him right and that those quote secular scientists are getting it right yeah they just um don't see necessarily the implications of getting it right 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 so there there's a great deal of and some some are more i think dr sean carroll's honest about this there's there's a great deal of metaphysics or non-physical philosophy for lack of a better word in your discipline especially because it it's somewhat theoretical uh there's there is physical observation but there are 
there are metaphysical implications for what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and I don't think most scientists think about that. I'm not going to measure the metaphysical in right. my experiment. And right. that's How what I'm you, thinking about yeah. is what's my next experiment going to teach me? Right, right. So yeah. there's a, there's an assume, there's nothing wrong with right. methodological naturalism. The, the, to, you're, you're not to really, a point. Yeah, to yeah. a point. Yeah. It's, but it is a fine step into a philosophical naturalist yes. worldview. It is. And you know... God says that I see him in nature. So I, in some sense, expect methodological naturalism to reveal God. Yeah. But you're right. When I take that fine step to philosophical naturalism, for people who don't know these terms, methodological naturalism says I'm going to study nature by doing experiments, basically, by the methods that assume things will work the same way every right. time. It's not a statement against God. Right. A lot of people think but that But philosophical it's... naturalism says all there is is nature. Yeah. And so... Um, Anyway, I, I think, yeah, we need to be careful not to take that step. But, again, I think Scripture tells us that studying nature, studying the way God makes nature work should reveal his character. And that is basically methodological naturalism. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I know we've been talking all day, and both <laughs> yes. of us are probably a little hungry, and uh, Chow is coming in a, in a few <laughs> few minutes. Uh, very quickly, I want to just thank you so much, sir, for uh, silently auditing my class and giving me one of the most memorable and never to forget experiences that I'll ever have in my in my in my public teaching <laughs> apologetics. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure, and I'm I'm glad it's how we met. Yeah, I am too. And because uh, I got to know you a little bit yeah. before you got to know me. Yeah, yeah. that's that's fun. And and also, uh, just briefly, uh, your latest book. Yeah. I, I I bought it a month ago, not ever thinking that I would meet you. Um, briefly, just just run down what it is and 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 uh, what it's all about. It's called The Creator Revealed. You can get it on Amazon. A physicist examines the Big Bang in the Bible. And it basically is a um, simple, easy to understand, hopefully entertaining discussion of how some of these things we've talked about today, the origin of the universe in the Big Bang points to the biblical God and how that aligns really well with the story of Genesis. I know both Christians and non-Christians who think that the Big Bang and Genesis are incompatible um, or that the Big Bang somehow points away from God, but in fact, just the opposite are true. The Big Bang points to God, it's compatible with Genesis, and the book tries to explain that in simple, entertaining language. And it's not just theistically minded, because when I first, when right. I got the book, I opened it, I was like, ooh, cool, Michael Strauss's book. I opened it, the first page I opened to it, you were presenting the gospel. Yeah, it's it's not a, just theistic. In fact, another portion of the book talks about how this message has affected individuals' lives that I know. These are yeah. true stories of people who have become Christians because the Big Bang points to God, or yeah. Christians who have had their faith deepened. Yeah. And, and I've tried to make it practical as well. Yeah. And you're right, it, it isn't just um, a deistic God made the universe. It's right. the biblical God who cares about us as humans. Yeah. Yeah reveal himself in the origin of the universe and in the scripture. Amen. We'll wrap it up there. Thank you, Dr. Strauss, so much for your time. God bless your work at CERN and uh, continue to do good work for the kingdom. Thank Thank you. you. Nice meeting you. You too.